Welcome to The Unapologetic Woman. I'm your host, Pyle Berry. With over a decade of a blended experience in clinical psychology and global leadership development, I've dedicated my career and life purpose to empower women to believe I deserve a seat at the table and it's about damn time. But how do you create synergy between who you are and how you lead? On this podcast, we address that inner critic holding you back, release narratives that no longer serve you, and explore how to use your leadership platform to make an impact around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Simply put, I cut out the bullshit. I'm here to share inspiration, practical tips, and have challenging conversations with other badass individuals who are shifting the narrative for all women. So let's stop apologizing for who we are and rise together as the unapologetic woman. This podcast is a Soul Fire production. This interview was recorded prior to the November elections. Welcome to The Unapologetic Woman. I'm your host, Pyle Berry, and I'm so excited to have you all here. And especially, I want to give a warm welcome to our guest today, Kavita Mera. Kavita is a strategic and determined leader in the nonprofit space, and currently she works in the executive leader for Sucky. And I am so excited to have you here. Thank you, Kavita, for joining us today. Hey, Pyle. Thanks so much for having me. Before we get into all this, like, great questions and, you know, really learning more about what you're doing in the leadership platform. I'd love to take a moment to learn a little bit more about you and for the audience to hear about what, you know, your role is with Sucky and what, you know, your purpose is there. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a great question. This work is, is deeply personal. And um, so Sucky for South Asian Women, we work with survivors of gender-based violence here in New York City. We've been serving the South Asian diaspora for 31 years. And back in the fall of 2002, I was an intern at Sucky. And wow. um, I, yeah, and I remember going to the fall gala. We used to have our gala in the fall at the time. And my boyfriend, who's now my husband, was with me. And we we're sitting at the dinner table. And I remember turning to him and I remember saying to him, I want to be the next. Purvi Shah. And Purvi Shah was the executive director at the time. Wow. And he said to me, no, you want to be the next Kavita Mera. Um, and so I, I knew that I wanted to lead this organization at some point in my life. So I applied for this job twice over the course of like, you know, from 2002 until 2017 when I got the role. But because of the life experiences that I've had, and my relationship with the work and the early part of my career when I was working directly with survivors, there was something about Sucky that always just drew me back. And when I started to share that story with folks, it's amazing, but like people would always say to me the same thing, like, you know, I was a volunteer with Sucky and I'm so excited to come back in this new capacity. Or we currently have someone on staff who was um, a partner of ours who worked as a community partner of ours, then joined the board and now is on staff, which is crazy. She's wow. had a 20 year history with the organization. So there's something really powerful about this organization that really draws people in. And I think that's what holds what I hold close to my heart. That's amazing. I mean, I love that you had this clear vision of where you wanted to go, where you wanted to be, and you achieved that. You're there today and in that role. And, um, you know, I want to know, like, you know, as you talk about this, this organization and the why behind it, you know, and I feel that whenever someone's starting going into any type of work, having your purpose and having your why of 
why you want to support this organization, why you want to build your career. And that is so important because that drives that purpose and passion even more. So talk to me a little bit about that. What was your why of that this organization was so important to you? I know that my life, my sister's life, my mother's life would have fundamentally been better had Chucky been in it. Um, and it's something that um, I think about quite frequently. I think about my husband and I often talk about survivorship. It's like dinner time conversation for us. But um, we talk about, you know, mechanisms in place that could have prevented harm in our lives. And for me, Stucky would have been one of them. If my mother had a community or a resource or a space to know that leaving was an option and that she would be supported throughout the course of the process and that staying in a problematic marriage that inflicted harm to her and her children consistently is not something that she has to live with or her children have to live with. And, you know, I, I, I think about the work that, you know, the, the experiences I had, especially the first 18 years of my life, it's now I'm, I'm, you know, 20 years from that. And it's still at that point where I still need to unlearn so much negative behavior because of what happened during my formative years. Right. So for me, it's, it's deeply personal. And I think yeah. for a lot of people who come into this movement, it is deeply personal work. It's what drives me. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, um, the power of having and, and why these nonprofits exist like Sucky is so that, you know, and it stems from that place of like people who feel that this is something that I needed in my life. And so I'm going to create this and have this, you know, and as your role being in Sucky, and like you mentioned, it's like, you're still trying to unlearn some of those like negative behaviors. How do you, as you're now in leadership and you're working with, you know, some of the counselors, you're working with um, your team members, how are you able to set that boundary and able to like, you know, know your role in leadership and also as you're trying to work through whatever that emotional toll may be of what you're hearing? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I know that my trauma, I say this a lot, but like my trauma is oftentimes, you know, my guiding light. And then it is also the weight that I hold on my back. Mm. So when I, when I came to Saki, I knew that as a survivor, I had a very clear plan of what I had imagined for the organization in terms of its, its footprint and its, its growth. And um, I had made that really clear early on. Mm-hmm. Um, to to the staff and to the board um, of like what what I think we we need to be for the community and at the same time Sucky has also been as an organization critical in my healing process and that's a reflection of our team right of us walking into a space that comes from one that's really centered on love and safety and being trauma-informed and recognizing survivorship in all of us. That is, that I wouldn't, I have not learned in any other organization, in any other leadership capacity prior to this role. And so I've been able to put into practice all of the work that I've, I've, I've or all of the, the skills that I've learned through therapy. I mm-hmm. see it playing out in my professional life as well. Mm-hmm. And it's been incredibly instructional um but this this work while i've 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 been part of a team that's that's you know sort of moved the the organization along and it's it's growth trajectory it's also given me so much right and like i have to constantly ask myself 
you know, when I'm uh, thinking about the experiences I have with my direct reports or, or anyone on the team, you know, is this, is this triggering something from the past? Is this my trauma brain that's mm. coming up? Is this, you know, what, what is coming up for me right now? And I wouldn't have been able to find those navigation tools had it not been for Sucky and really it's playing such an instrumental role in my healing journey. That's really powerful. You know, it's that you're able to take your own personal learnings and you're able to take the skills that you've learned through therapy, through your own personal journey, and even apply them from a leadership perspective. And I think that that's the, you know, sometimes um, people don't realize the actual connection between what a family dynamic is like is also often, you know, you can place that into an organizational dynamic as well, that whatever each person is coming with, you know, like someone may have their blind spots and their challenges and those challenges don't go away because you're in a workplace. It just manifests in a different way. So, you know, as a leader, the fact that you're able to use your own skills, I mean, that's really, you're taking in a lot of empathy there and you're being very intentional when you're talking to your direct reports about what's happening in, you know, whatever the issue may be at hand or whatever they're working on and how is it affecting them? It's like, you're taking on that as well. So how do you as a leader, you know, um, take that time for yourself as well to make sure that because a lot of times leaders are, you know, they want to just do, do, do. They want to be there for or all their, their um, individual contributors. They want to be there for teams, but then they get burnt out. So how do yeah. you, balance yourself so that you're emotionally, you know, feeling, and of course there's going to be days where you just are going to be burned out. There's no way around it. But for the most yeah. part, how do you make sure that you're still staying in a strong place so that you can be there for your team? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, so I did this self-assessment tool a few years ago. And one thing that came up was uh, by my very nature, I tend to think big picture um, mm -hmm. and sketch out, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I, I can I can craft a vision for an organization that it feels very natural for me. Mm -hmm. However, when I am ex feeling extreme forms of stress, that that part of my brain shuts off, and I automatically get into really tactical, granular work. Mm -hmm. And my my relationships become more transactional. And so I have to actually now talk to like you know tell myself that or catch myself of like when I'm getting into that headspace. Because I'm not helpful to anyone around me when I get mm -hmm. transactional and, I, and I'm just trying to cross things off a list. So mm -hmm. forcing myself to slow down in spite of the fact that I have a thousand things in front of me makes me more effective in my relationship with, with my colleagues. And, you know, we've, gr we've, we've more than tripled in three years. And so uh, right now we're at this interesting point where my, my colleagues, especially the other directors, have an immense amount of work on their plates. And because they have an immense amount of work on their plates, um, they're also in that cycle of just crossing things off their list. And I'm, I'm trying as a leader to help like slow them down. Um, right. And that feels like my, like right now, like a, a huge part of my responsibility. Um, because the strategy part is really what they're good at. And that's what real thought partnership is recognizing, you know, how do we create space for folks? so they can engage in, in deeper conversations to move the organization along. So that, that has been, um, I would say, one of the more like critical reflection tools that I've been able to engage in, especially when navigating through uh, COVID 
um, Mm -hmm. and the impact that it's had on our community. Yeah, no, that's really powerful. I love that you mentioned that, you know, taking an assessment and in really investing in yourself to know that, you know, what are my blind spots or what is the way that I work under stress and what do I work with when I'm actually functioning in my most, you know, uh, strength way. And so knowing that so that when you are switching into that tactical, you're like, oh, okay, that's your essentially um, clue to that I'm in a place which is not going to be healthy for for me or for the team around me. So I love that you did that. And you know, you just mentioned COVID. And I want to ask you that how has it been for you through COVID, through for the lead, for the organization, and what has been the most deeply impacted? Yeah. Um, so our role as essential workers has never been more evident than this period. Mm-hmm. Um, we're based in New York City, and we went remote March 12th, which is, I think, March 13th was the first official death of COVID right. first, uh, in, in New York City. Um, we were remote a week before the schools decided to go remote. And um, pretty early on, we knew that there were two public health crises coming about. The first is obviously the pandemic through COVID-19. And then the second is the rise of gender-based violence. And because of the nature of our work, we were doing very aggressive safety planning with active cases. Through the course of that safety planning, what came up is not only um, survivors feeling the anxiety around being at home, shelter in place with the person who inflicts harm, but also the economic impact of the pandemic and how it was wreaking havoc and how it was wreaking havoc on the community. I remember, uh, I think this was like March 15th or 16th, we were doing a team meeting and one of my colleagues had said that she had spoken with a survivor she works with who has a three-year-old and um, is not living with a person who inflicts harm, but they had about like $16 to their name. She didn't feel comfortable going outside to get food and she didn't have enough money for milk to give wow. her a kid. And so we, we knew immediately that we needed to invest in work um, that is around food security. Mm-hmm. Um, and we needed to invest in work around utility and security, and we needed to invest in work around um, like overall financial security. So we've been doing a lot of that this year. Um, to support the community through this difficult time. But the months of March, April, and the early part of May were were really dark periods. It was a really, really dark yeah. period. Um, you know, and to see a community in pain and to know that it was it's our responsibility to demonstrate that we will be there no matter what, that felt like, you know, the North Star through that period. Wow, that's amazing. So it sounds like you had to pivot really quickly, but that you as leaders were able to still really listen to your clients of what their needs are and meet them where they were. And, you know, I think that that is one of the biggest reasons why companies do stay successful or they are able to survive something like the pandemic where, you know, they're really still actively listening to like, where are my clients? How do I meet them? And, you know, how do we quickly adjust? But what was that like for you guys, you know, as you were adjusting to what your clients needed, um, how much of that pivot would you say was like now focusing on that financial economic support or the, you know, getting them their groceries, whatever it may be, versus the actual mental health part of it? Yeah, so it was all of that. Um, So we did a, we did a couple of things. One is that, you know, fairly early on, we um, got everyone on the team cell phones, hotspots, Mm -hmm. and um, everyone, of course, had laptops so that they can continue to do all of the clinical and um, case management work seamlessly. Um, 
We also created a text line so survivors could text us at any point in time um, when when they're they're experiencing any any um, particularly difficult situation. And we created an email option for survivors to reach out to us. So so recognizing the the the, the environment and the ecosystem that survivors were in, we we enhanced our program touch points. Simultaneously, um, you know, based on the feedback we were getting from survivors, we traditionally work with survivors around our economic empowerment program, our, 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 our advocates work around legal issues or immigration issues, um, or we have a mental health program or a youth program, but we don't really focus too, at the heart of our work is not around financial security. I mean, Mm-hmm. We've had a food justice program since 2019, but that program in 2019 distributed only 3,000 pounds of food. In from between the months of March and August, we distributed 16,000 pounds of food um, and basically created our version of Stress Direct, so that wow. um, 170 families had consistently weekly groceries. Um, That's incredible. Yeah, and we we had we've distributed over $130,000. Of, of immediate cash support. And that comes in the form of rental assistance and, and utility assistance. Mm-hmm. But really what also, you know, if we think about this from the business perspective, we were listening to, you know, what the community was was experiencing. But my role is to serve as a conduit from like where the community is and where our investors are. So our supporters right. and our stakeholders and to bridge that narrative, right? Really that's what Sucky does. That's what any nonprofit should be doing is, is mm-hmm. the people who are, uh, um, connected to the work of stakeholders and investors, they use nonprofits to essentially serve as a conduit to serve the community. And that's, that's really, that, that, that chain, that, that link of communication felt very evident during the early months of the pandemic. And so constantly we were updating um, our supporters to let them know, you know, where their dollars were going and what survivors were experiencing at this time um, and how they were making an immediate difference. And so to know that, you know, we could distribute 16,000 pounds of food within the course of a few months is because we had a rally of supporters behind us um, and who believed in the vision that we were doing, but also understood that it was part of their social responsibility to effectuate that change. Right. That's incredible that you were able to pivot that much and, you know, we're able to create that community. What was it like though? So that, you know, with the global global pandemic and having to pivot and then, you know, being that middle person to showing your investors where their money's going, everything. What was the change that you noticed? What was the change that happened with your investors and making sure that as a nonprofit, you're still able to get, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to the not you know with nonprofit you you depend a lot on stakeholder and sponsorship. So how did that shift for you as you were trying yeah. to get more money in to be able to support your clients? Yeah, I mean, and traditionally, you know, we we now have our our largest fundraising event of the year in the spring, our gala. Mm-hmm. So um, that was projected to bring in close to half a million dollars. We couldn't mm-hmm. obviously have that, so we did an online campaign, which which ended up being successful. So we were projected to be just shy of two million for 2020, our fiscal year 2020. Uh, mm-hmm. We ended up being uh, exceeding two million. Wow. Um, and so, and that was a result of um, that was a result of really like the community coming together. Um, you know, Sucky is incredibly lucky to have a community of supporters who are there invested in the work and in the movement. This is not a B2B relationship. And, and I've mm-hmm. seen that happen in the nonprofit sector and it, and it fully exists. Mm-hmm. But at Sucky, um, our, our supporters, our investors are, are deeply committed to serving survivors of gender-based violence. 
And so when we started to activate um, our community to share what survivors were experiencing, um, folks just dug their heels in and said that we're going to step up. And um, we were nervous. There was a period where we were incredibly nervous because we were we were potentially losing half a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we were we were able to come out the other side also because folks recognized that this is such an unusual circumstance because survivors were at that time sheltering in place with the both the person inflicting right. harm. You know, whatever touch points that we needed to do as an organization, folks were going to invest in that. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. I mean, to have the people of the community be the ones that are invested in seeing that, you know, these survivors can have a place of safety because when you are stuck indoors and especially the first eight weeks where you were in lockdown and now you're in lockdown, your kids are at home, you know, there's no, like usually for kids, mm-hmm. even getting to school is an escape for them, especially for the coming from a home of survivor or of domestic violence. Yeah. So now yeah. everyone's there and just for a more, you know, another, a family that doesn't necessarily experience that same level of like domestic violence, it was a difficult period for them. So I'm curious to know that, you know, as you were raising more awareness in the community, as community were getting more involved, what was the biggest thing that you did see? Like, what was the level of humanity, the the focus or the investment in Sucky and to help survivors? Like, did you see like an uptake, I guess I want to ask in, um, valuing humanity or valuing some of those more compassion and empathy for this community? Did you see a difference in that? I think folks were feeling helpless and hopeless. Mm -hmm. Those who had the capacity to effectuate change wanted to be able to use their resources in a way that would positively impact someone else's life. And because we were all indoors, and we didn't know what was happening. And we were just, you know, there was very uh, limited news information. Like, like a media mm-hmm. wasn't really covering much at this point either, right? Like there was a lot of confusion. Um, organizations like Seki were able to pick up what's happening on the ground in the community and compile those trends and then articulate that narrative of what survivors were experiencing to the broader South Asian diaspora. I think once folks got to see that the community that they've been investing in for years is experiencing such pain and harm, it was only natural for them to want to step up. Yeah. No, I think that's amazing. And, you know, something that I find interesting is sometimes, with especially within the South Asian community, they struggle with thinking that these things can exist within our community because, you know, South Asian community and culture is like, you're this family oriented, you're very like well-behaved and you don't, you know, you don't seek out mental health help. You just keep yourself busy, right? You get a job, get yourself busy. Like you don't need therapy. How have you been able to raise that awareness just within even the South Asian community of recognizing that this is a true issue. This is something that we need to support women or kids and children around that are experiencing this? What has that been like? Yeah, so globally, one in every three women experience gender-based violence. In Mm -hmm. the United States, that statistic is one in every four. For the Mm -hmm. South Asian diaspora in the U.S., it's two in every five. Okay. Um, And so we see a higher rate of gender-based violence across our community, and that comes up as either intimate partner violence, Mm -hmm. parental abuse, in-law abuse. It It can really show up in a host of ways. But I think one of the things we're very conscious about is is recognizing that survivors are amongst us. 
and mm -hmm. across the community and don't occupy a particular gendered identity. They don't occupy a particular relationship and they don't occupy a particular religion, region, caste or class. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think we try to really center the work within that, that uh, lens and uh, to use the language that is specifically around survivorship, right? And so we don't, we don't gender it, right? We don't, we don't, we don't put a face to it because, because one, it is, it is stigmatizing survivors and two, it ignores a group of people who might identify as survivors and who might not feel comfortable coming forward. And I think one of the things that I, you know, intellectually really curious about is um, the experience of uh, cisgender heterosexual male survivors and um, how are we creating space for them? And I think toxic masculinity really prevents that particular group of survivors, whether it's survivors of intimate partner violence or um, survivors of child sexual abuse or sur survivors of, of in-law abuse or, or whatever it might be. How, how are we creating space for that community to come forward to talk about that, their survivorship? This yeah. is like an evolution of our work and our movement that I, you know, I, I think will eventually happen. Yeah, and you know, that sometimes can be really difficult for people to swallow is that, you know, men have also been equally abused as women or that they, they, that they also are part of that um, population. And I think that it just, there's a stigma around it. And as well as like, how much do you see men coming forward also for themselves because of the stigma of like, well, you're a man, you should be able to handle it, things like that versus a woman. But, you know, what is that looking like even within your own organization of um, supporting men? We have a, um, a support group right now that's for um, our youth male survivors, which is new for us. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't see a, a significant amount of uh, cisgender heterosexual men coming to us for intimate partner violence cases, but one in every six men in their life will experience child sexual abuse. That's incredible. The work and, that you're doing... Um, Sorry, go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, no. I was going to say that there's there's very little space for them to heal from that right. trauma. Right. I was going to say, you know, the work that you're doing is just so powerful because it's a topic that people get get really uncomfortable with. And like you mentioned, that you know, there's a survivor that exists amongst all of us. And even when you are, you know, someone who may be building out their team, there may be a survivor on the team that's joining, but they are now 10 years, you know, it's been 10 years removed or maybe 20 years removed, whatever it may be, but it still is a part of them. And the language that you create as a leader, the language that you create in the culture of your organization makes such a big difference because it can either subtly shame them or it can allow them to feel like they are truly a part of the group. And so I'm curious that across your work, that you've worked with many organizations at this point in your career. And so how have you seen that, that a, you know, a culture of where the leaders can truly role model creating an environment where, you know, language and the language that you use is really important with the teams that you're around. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I've, I've typically worked in roles that um, I've had to feel an emotional connection to the work or like it's had to, mm -hmm. to speak to me in a way um, that that um, gets my heart like pumping. I, yeah. I, it's just like how I, it's just how I'm built. It's, but I, I, looking back on my career, I wish I had the language 
that I have now in those other roles. And um, I think I, I did myself and my colleagues at that time, you know, grave disservice from not just having mm-hmm. that, that language. Um, but now that I can, you know, I'm learning this, this new process. I'm learning about how survivorship really shows up in the work and, and, you know, so much from, <laughs> from this organization. Um, I share my, my, my experiences not to, to, you know, and I'm, and I'm always really careful about this, not to make it sort of about me, but to demonstrate that survivors should have a safe space to share their story, even as we do this work. And there's something really powerful that Tarana Burke once said, and I'm, I'm like, I'm paraphrasing, but um, she, she said that, you know, those who have experienced the harm, those who are the closest to the work must be leading the work. And um, as as I think about my own life, you know, you know, it's not only in the, the the forms of pain I've experienced. It didn't only happen in my childhood, but it happened in a host of ways. But I think about also like what really drives me is that I I didn't come from a middle class family. I came mm-hmm. from a very much working class roots, and I'm not. I've never been part of the model minority. I I don't identify with that part of the demographic and of the South Asian demographic. And so, um, for me, I come with this lens of like, well, what does it mean to to experience gender based violence? But what does it also mean to have like to make the difficult choice of putting food on the table and keeping your lights on because I've been there. Right. And so like, right. what, what are those choices that we have to make and yeah. having to navigate through that is just, those are impossible questions or answers that we have to, to place on ourselves. And so it, it informs a lot of my work as well. You know, Kavita, what something that comes across very clearly about you is how open and transparent you are and how vulnerable you are. And, you know, and I could just imagine that, you know, being in the position you're in and being able to be able to share those stories, you've had to work through quite a bit and, you know, also treating it from that place of like helping individuals that are reporting to you and your team members recognize that this work isn't just about a, you know, check this off, check that off, but you're really impacting other people's lives and that you're giving them opportunities and creating resources for them that they otherwise just wouldn't have. So it's really apparent to me as a leader that you really value transparency and you really value having that purpose. And as you mentioned that, you know, the ones who've gone through the experience must be the ones who are leading it. But how do you connect with you know, individuals that want to work with this community and want to work with this purpose, but may not have experienced it. How do you help them connect that dots? Because, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of people who are, you know, as counselors or therapists that are very attracted to supporting domestic violence, but they may not have experienced it. So what is that like for you as a leader? Yeah, yeah. And we definitely have members on the team Mm-hmm. Um, who are not, who don't identify as survivors. But I, I fundamentally think that if folks want to come into this work, uh, we have to support them. That the, the mm-hmm. nobody walks into this work thinking to themselves, wow, I'm totally going to retire by the time I'm 65 <laughs> because I'm making so much money. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. You don't go into nonprofit for the money. Exactly. Right. Like we all recognize that there is, that there is some part of us that this, this work is speaking to. And we might not have those lived experiences because I don't have the lived experiences of all of this. Nobody does. Right, right. But um, it's about building that deep sense of empathy and understanding where folks are right now in their life and what one's responsibility is through the course of like being a service provider. 
I think that's, that's um, really important is what you touched on is like really having empathy and, you know, whether it's like, as someone is also moving up in their field and as, you know, someone is building their business and they're starting to hire teams and bringing them on is recognizing that, you know, you got to have empathy for them as they're coming on and they're trying to learn. And they also are sensitive to not rocking the boat and they want to make sure that it's, you know, they've been onboarded. They want to prove that they were the right hire. And so having that empathy of recognizing that, okay, they may not have had that experience before, but they're here because they connect to it in a certain way. I always say that, you know, when I was a clinical therapist, I always say that you can tell what the personal experience was of the person based off of the specialization of that therapist. And mm. you can tell where they're feeling, you know, it's usually because it is a mirror, like any work that someone goes into and when they feel passionate about it, it's because they felt it to some degree. And, you know, like I may have never felt um, domestic violence, but you know, when I talk about empathy a lot, I always say that when people think about, well, I just can't relate to them. Well, take away the situation and think about the emotion. What is it that that person is experiencing? You know, is it fear? Is it sadness? Is it rejection? And then think to yourself, have I felt that at some point? Have I felt fear? Have I felt rejection? And what was that emotion like? How did I feel that moment? And what did that do to me mentally? And now just like multiply that tenfold and you'll be able to meet that person where they're at. You'll never understand what they personally went through, but you can actually understand that emotion and that's how you create that connection. So that's how I mm -hmm. typically describe empathy mm -hmm. for people mm -hmm. who I just love that. don't know how to connect to it. But, you know, and I, I think of leadership when you're in leadership um, and especially in the work that you're doing, it is so important to have empathy but I also say that it's very important to have compassion for yourself because in this work, you know, you're seeing so much going on and it's so easy to get like immersed into it where you completely run yourself over as well. So it's like, how do you like make sure that you're not taking, you know, that work and how do you then bring it back home with your own family? And, you know, you're able to, because a lot of times when you're in these positions, it's like, you're so passionate about that work. And how do you set that boundary for yourself that, you know, when I'm in my family, I'm going to be present with them or when I'm, you know, creating that boundary, because otherwise, again, burnout can happen and it can create resentment towards the team. It can create resentment towards the work. So how do you balance that? Or do you? <laughs> oh, I don't know if I do a good job balancing it. Uh, I, I get stuck in my head a lot and, 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 you know, just public service announcement, I am married to the greatest human being alive, <laughs> right? And so he is literally the most remarkable person I've ever met in my life um, and is, has, has been incredible, especially this year, has been incredibly patient with, with, with you know, what I've experienced because I, I also, I'm, everything is at home. Right. I don't, you know, we live in a two bedroom in Jersey city. I don't have an office, you know, I don't have a <laughs> private space to go to. So I'm, right. I'm speaking to you from our dining room table. Um, I, there, everything, right. There is very little separation, uh, between what's happening at work and what's, you know, happening in, in my personal life right now. And, um, I think we have to give our, our partners and our families, like, like, I just feel like, having that latitude has just allowed me to breathe easier. And it's allowed me to be kinder to myself because my husband inflicts it on me. Like he inflicts so mm -hmm. much kindness and, and, and love and, and, and like tenderness. 
at this really hard time. Um, And like, I remember (laughs) we were, um, we were, it was like Friday and it was in the afternoon and I just wrapped up work and he knew that I was was just chewing away at something in my head. (laughs) And, 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 and I think we all get there, right. Especially like as readers, like you just have something stuck in your head. So he's like, listen, you're not present. I would love for you to be present, but whenever you want to be present, we're going to be here for you. Wow. Like, just having that space to know that it's so obvious that I'm physically here, but mentally I am just eating away at this other issue. And mm-hmm. he has given me that space and that kindness to say, like, do what you need to do, process right. what you need to process and come back. Cause I will always love you. Wow. Um, that's incredible. That just shows like that, you know, safety again. Right. And that stability that you have where you're able, you're not being shamed for it. You're not being guilted for yeah. it that, you know, you may harbor your own level of some, some guilt, but like, it's not being there presented to you by anybody else. And so you're able to create that. That's amazing. I want to, um, you know, I, I, I typically end with like two questions. One being that in your trajectory, as you've moved up into this space, into leadership, and as you are now, you know, um, inspiring your teams to grow into that space, who have been women that have played a really large role in your growth? And how, how would you describe them as being the unapologetic woman? Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, that's such a great question. There are few. Um, and I, you know, I'm the youngest of three. So mm-hmm. by ver- the very nature of who I am, I am like an observer. That's how I learn. So the, the first has to be actually one of my board members who, um, I, I, I hardly ever talk about her, but she's probably one of the most remarkable leaders I've ever seen in my life. Her name is Nandini Mongia, and she's the treasurer of Prudential Financial. And she, I've just seen her operate in um, a way that I, I, I try to emulate. And I remember I was going through a really difficult period in March or April, uh, and, and she, she pulled me aside and, and she said, listen, Kavita, just always assume the best intent and that will be your, your strongest navigation tool in every relationship and it was such a common sense piece like it was commonsensical yeah. but at the same time it's it's reframed everything I've done this year wow but even when I know that my trauma brain is like going crazy and it's like you know flashing lights um I I re- I, I, t- I pause I recenter and I go back to what Nandini said so, she, so she's one and while we haven't worked as closely as I would like to you know be- mm-hmm. because she's a board member She's amazing. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> she is. She just That's she incredible. Just her up. Um, and then the second I would have to say is my friend Joya, um, who connected mm-hmm. us, who you yeah. know, is one of, uh, you know, I value persistence. And, and mm-hmm. she's one of the most persistent people I know. And she's just such an optimist, um, which is something I, I, I aspire to learn. Yeah, um, so she, she's another one. Yeah. Yeah. I really admire Joya's consistency and just how she pushes through. Um, she is incredible. I, you know, for the listeners out there, the, the way that Kavita and I met was actually through Joya's, uh, she has a community for South Asians, um, called lady drinks. And, you know, I remember growing up actually watching Joya, um, she's a journalist. Yeah. And so that was my point of reference. So I remember just actually getting her uh, message and I was like, oh my God, Joya is reaching out to me, you know, and it was so great. But she has over this course of the period that I've been with uh, in the community, I mean, she just really 
really is, uh, she shows her concern and, and her empathy through yeah. really looking at like, how can I be there and deliver what you need? So yes. yeah, fantastic. I, she's, yeah, she's someone I've known for, for over a decade now. And I remember wow. uh, like feeling the same way, right? Because everybody saw her growing up, like watching, right. uh, when watching TV, ABS every Saturday morning. Yep. And I remember, <laughs> for sharing this story, but I remember we were out one night and um, someone came up to her and they're like, are you Joya Das? <laughs> I always uh, tease her about that. And I, the reason I tease her is because she's so humble. Yeah. And so she's accomplished so much has broken so many barriers and yet is so helpful. Yeah. Um, I know I completely story. agree. And, you know, and, and that right there actually is just that um, we just, you know, by the way, as we're recording this, um, we just had the elections. Kamala Harris is now the first woman of color as VP. And, you know, there's a lot of like memes. There's a lot of things going out there of like, you know, women wear your heels because there's a lot of broken glass around you, right? So, but the thing is that she has definitely broken that. But what does that really mean for, for other women that are in those leadership? Like, how do we break that? Because she is still one woman that has gone there. But how do the rest of the women actually be able to break that? glass barrier. So I mean, that's the billion dollar question, right? <laughs> like, how do we continue <laughs> to take the hammer in our hands and yeah. break that ceiling? Yeah. yeah, of course. And I, I think it is, I mean, um, you know, for me, it is, it's always been the intersection of race, gender, and class. And so, yeah. uh, you know, I, I've never been able to look at these things in, in a particular lens, but what I love about uh, Vice President-elect Harris is that it, you know, she doesn't have that model minority history. She doesn't have right. that typical trajectory. And I, I just think it is so inspiring what she's accomplished in, 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 the course, in spite of that. Yeah. So I'd like to leave with asking you, what do you define as the unapologetic woman? What does that mean? What are the characteristics of an unapologetic woman to you? Someone who's kind, but not a pushover. Mm -hmm. Someone who is thoughtful, but not a people pleaser. Someone who is persistent and has hustle, but is not ruthless and relentless. And for me, you know, it's always going to be someone who, who wants to leave this world better than they received it. I love that. And you clearly are doing that with Sucky and with how passionately you speak about your work. And it just comes through. And I feel so honored to have had you today. Thank you so much for being part of this. How can audience members, if they want to reach out to you, what would be the best way for them to connect with you? Yeah, um, so our website is uh, www.saki.org and um, S-A-K-H-I.org. And um, folks can just find my email on there and just email me. I fantastic. respond to every single email I get. Yeah, that's fantastic. And again, like that really speaks to like your transparency in how you role model what true leadership looks like. And so I want to just say thank you so much again for being on The Unapologetic Woman. And I'm sure that audience out there really got a lot of inspiration and got a lot of ideas of like how they can be present and work through their transformation as a leader. So thank you so much, Kavitha. Thank you, Pyle. This has been lots of fun. Thanks for listening to The Unapologetic Woman. If you like what you heard today, then please subscribe so you'll get real-time updates when I post a new episode. And if you really believe that others should be hearing this, then leave a rating or review this episode so others can find it too. And if there's something you'd really love for me to cover or highlight, then head over to my Instagram account at pileberry 
DM me to let me know. I'm all ears. If you want free resources, practical tips, and inspirational stories that I share with my clients, visit pileberry.com and subscribe to my newsletter. You'll get them all. Until then, take a moment to celebrate your journey, reflect, and be ready to embrace your next epiphany.